When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley, joined by the great Tony Greer. Today is the last day of the month, and uh, for the seventh month in a row, the S&P 500 is ending the month up, uh, the S&P ending uh, on August up 3%. We're hovering around all-time highs that were made just yesterday. Meanwhile, we had an incredibly bullish housing number, I'm talking about the case Schiller. And meanwhile, copper and oil and other commodities are holding on to the gains that they made uh, post uh, last week's Jackson Hole meeting. For all this and more, we're joined by Tony Greer of uh, TG Macro. Tony, how are you doing? Great, Jack. Good to have you on, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Ash is on vacation, and I feel very lucky because I get to speak to you. I've watched Ash a lot of uh, vacation. I know. <laughs> yeah, his That's first fine. vacation in about six years, but he, he deserves it. Uh, so, Tony, yes, talk to yes me. we were talking um, copper and oil and other commodities. Really, we've seen uh, new life breathe uh, into them by a lot of different factors. Tell us what you're seeing on the tape for copper and oil. Yeah. Uh, OK, so the copper and oil markets are, you know, holding together. I think it's important that coming out of last week, as you said, when Jerome Powell sort of um, you know, kick the can for a rate hike well down the road again. You know, we're socializing the idea of tapering without defining exactly what tapering is. But we had, you know, no less than five or six Fed officials come out and mention tapering last week before Jerome Powell came out at Jackson Hole. I feel like they were continuing to just get that across the tape so that anything Jerome Powell said would be perceived as dovish. And that's exactly what they did when he came out and said that the tapering would not have an effect on rate hikes. So what that did, in my opinion, you know, it looks like it turned the dollar back south. And as you said, breathed life back into the commodity complex. Um, the Bloomberg Commodities Index rallied 6% last week. That's a really big week. Um, the dollar giving back a percent last week, which is sort of the percentage gain the prior week, and it sort of puts the mojo back in that commodity trade, right? The, the underlying tightness tends to shine through. You had, um, for example, we had Brent spreads blow out quite a bit into backwardation this week. I think it speaks to a little bit of the turmoil in the Middle East. Um, I think they're probably just trying to get their hands on some, some front month supply there as quickly as they can just to secure it. And... Um, then we look over at the copper market and it's consolidating below 10K, which is about the all time high. What's most important to me about base metals, though, is you've got aluminum, you know, just consistently making a new all time high, Jack. So this is the part to me that's sort of, you know, in the power curve of the base metals rally, which is responding to, you know, all of the debt and all of the Fed balance sheet that we're throwing on the pile right here to fight this pandemic. So now that we've got aluminum on the run, We've got a couple of really positive factors because the demand for aluminum is there from the restart and the recovery, et cetera. 
You've got one of the major provinces is China trying to clamp down on carbon emissions, which is raising the price of aluminum there. And so, you know, you then you've got the bottlenecks and all these supply constraints from all the supply lines being held up and cut off and 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 bottlenecked, et cetera. So, you know, there's one-way traffic in the aluminum market right now making new highs. You look over at copper, and copper just had a great bounce off its 200-day moving average. I look up at my leaderboard today, and I see aluminum and nickel right at the top of it with major magnitude moves to new highs, and the dollar on its butt again. So to me, this is sort of you know very reminiscent of that cyclical rotation getting back in gear, right? It's driving the S&P. The S&P has now carved a new high in 15 consecutive weeks, and the record is 16 consecutive weeks going back to 1985. Um, we know what the market did after that 16 consecutive week rally in 1985. It kept going higher eventually. But I think the point to, to uh, really latch onto here is that that underlying tightness in the commodity markets continues to show its face. The metals markets, including gold now, which has made a nice comeback from 1650 or so to 1800 again. And so with the commodity trade on the run, we start to get into that, um, you know, now we're in the middle of the third quarter, August is ending, and we start to get into that race for the winning sector of the year. And that's when it gets exciting to me, Jack, because this is the kind of this is the time of the year that I feel like, you know, the direction and the modus operandi of the S&P has revealed itself. It is, you know, now going to be responding to news. We've got commodity tailwinds. We've got dollar weakness tailwinds. And it feels like we are in the power curve of the equity trade again. So. You know, I'm looking across sectors now to see where I should be for the end of the year. And what's amazing to me is that even though you've got still retail in the lead of 48%, you've got oil and gas, XOP, I'm talking about behind that up about 40%. But all of a sudden, you've got broker dealers in the mix after the last rally that they've had, and they're up 37%. You've got financials in the mix all of a sudden, they're up 30%. They're the sixth strongest sector that I'm following. Okay, a little bit selfishly, but within that lead now, you've got home builders, metals and mining, um, and FANG stocks and financials all duking it out for their place in the lead of the stock market. And when I look at those sectors now, to me, it looks like home builders and financials have just begun to rally after long periods of consolidation. And so with those kind of tailwinds, with Apple breaking out and having large magnitude moves to a new high that we saw this week, it is really hard to get bearish the stock market, right? So we're, we're, we're going into the power curve of that. There is no alternative trade. We've been looking for it. And so now the right, the only thing that I can do is try to be in the right sectors and to make sure I'm big enough in the right places. It's the only thing I can do right now, Jack. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fascinating. Um, you note that retail is leading the charge up the most, up 48%. And then it's the oil and gas exploration that's that's uh, XOP. What's interesting interesting to me, Tony, is that when I think uh, retail, uh, I, I don't believe companies like Walmart, which are more consumer sa staple, more safe names are in there. So that means that you know Dick's Sporting Goods and the the things that really need the economy to run super hot, uh, perhaps one could call them cyclical, uh, for them to do well. So the fact that and and likewise, um, you know, exploration that's a pretty risky business. So. 
we've had a, a year of enormous uh, gro uh, economic growth, which has just lit a flame under these somewhat, quote, risky stocks. And what's interesting to me is, you note at the bottom is FANG stocks, big tech, up only about 22, 25 percent um, this year. A phenomenal year for, by any means, of course, but compared to 48 percent of retail. So what do you, are you thinking in terms of rotation? It, it has been, you know, uh, Apple and other stocks, as you say, that have uh, caught a bid over the past two months. How are you thinking of the rotation uh, trade going forward? Really, really well thought out, Jack. You know, it's you know, we just saw. I, I know that you're remembering the Fang performances from last year, right? And they were like, you know, seventy percent, eighty percent, and the numbers were astronomical. And so this speaks to generations and generations now, or literally across this decade, where investors have been programmed to prepare for deflation. And now, with the commodity sectors starting to show up and the cyclical sectors starting to show up, commodities take, I mean, excuse me, technology taking a little bit of the backseat to where it was when we were in that lockdown rotation, where everybody was locked at home and we were on our phones all day long, et cetera, et cetera, that horrible time in American history. But I think it speaks to, you know, what, what's coming out in the wash is that there is going to be demand for these hard assets as the Federal Reserve continues on this plan of, okay, they may be tapering, but they don't say anything about taking down the balance sheet, right? In my mind, tapering is they're going to go from 120 billion a month in purchases, I don't know, to 119 billion a month in purchases. I mean, I don't know. What do you think they're going to do? Cut them off at once? Not at all, you know? So I think this is going to be a very slow tiptoe I'm not a bond market expert, but the way the narrative is going, I would imagine that is going to be a very slow tiptoe into a very slight taper. And that kind of allows the S&P to continue to do its thing as long as the bond market allows it. And with bond yields, you know, kind of just, in my mind, bobbling between one and a quarter, 140 in the 10 year right now, um, the curves are kind of consolidating, break evens are consolidating. All of that is is green light go for the S&P, right? As long as the curve isn't breaking down, it seems like, you know, I, I don't know that yields are going to spike higher anymore, but as long as the, the S&P is perceiving a tame bond market that's not going to dislocate lower with a big spike in yields, I mean, where else are you going to go but the S&P? And now that we've logged 15 higher highs in a row consecutively in 15 weeks, you know, this is evidence-based investing now. This isn't, you know, this isn't finger in the wind stuff. I mean, we know what's going on here. The Fed is inflating assets, and if you have them, you're going to be okay. So, you know, always, always scary as to when we're going to have, you know, one of those volatility events where there's a slip in confidence and stocks sell off for a couple of days. But that formula has been tried and true for us that we've seen in the pullbacks, right? We see one or two negative days. Um, the S&P grazes a moving average, gets back on its feet. And, you know, which sector will it be now that leads us to a new high? And what's interesting that coming out of the last dip that we had to the S&P, um, it feels like home builders and financials got spun really sharply out of that last dip. So I'm trying to see if those are the sectors now. You know, we got some positive data that you mentioned. We got we beat an existing and new home sales last week. Home builders were shining on the week, up over 3%. Um, they're hanging in there this week now. So that might be a good place to pivot going forward. And we're just going to see how it all shakes out and try to be in the right places by the end of the year. But it's very interesting rotation. It's hard assets first now, technology second. And that is even with Apple making all-time highs, 
Um, you know, semiconductors, there's a shortage there and they're making all time highs. NVIDIA is soaring performance wise, energy first. Right. And that's a really, really important. Well, retail first, but hard assets first. Energy, metals and mining is in there. Um, home builders. It's really a lot of industrial stuff making this comeback right now, Jack. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, home builders, uh, that ETF XHB showing no signs of slowing down, especially on the news today from the, the case Schiller that housing prices increased 19% year over year, which is a, I believe it's the 13th month in a row that the yearly change has actually accelerated. So it's not just the first derivative is positive, the second derivative is positive. It's, it's growing and it's growing, the rate of it at which it's growing is growing higher. Um, a lot of people, Tony, you referenced, uh, were uh, getting bearish on these cyclical uh, assets, whether it's materials, home builders, or uh, energy, about three months ago when they started to roll over. But now that we've seen these uh, you know, new life being breathed into them, that narrative is being questioned. Uh, can you make sense of the rollover that we saw starting in, oh, I don't know, May or June? Um, was that just something that in a bull market is bound to happen? Because even though the S&P 500, um, you know, is remarkably steady about, you know, uh, we're almost a year where uh, with it, without the S&P making a 5% correction from all-time highs, which is truly, uh, you know, it's, it's historic. Um, but, but within those cyclical sectors, even though the total returns have been phenomenal, uh, there, there have been some pretty steady pullbacks. Um, what would you, you know, how would you make sense of the, the pullback that we've had, um, you know, since since May? Yeah, there, all right. So look, going back to May, Jack, if my memory serves me correctly, we've had a couple of risk episodes, right? In May, I remember that we had the first big headline inflation beat CPI, where there was just a huge, you know, all of a sudden everybody woke up and said, whoa, CPI can actually go up. Like, what the hell was that? Like, you know. So the tape said, whoa, there is marquee headline inflation now. What is that going to mean for the consumer, right? Because these are the stock, these are the consumer with retail on top. You can tell the consumer is alive and kicking, even though he's been locked at home more of the time. But let's go back into this now. You know, the case Schiller comes out with home prices rising to, you know, the highest levels at the fastest pace. And what does that do? gives the consumer a little bit of a cushion now, right? He's looking at his house value versus everything else. And he's like, well, you know, worst case scenario, you know, my house is up X, Y, Z percent this month. You know, I can afford to shift some assets around. I can be in the markets now. I can loosen my belt. And what is that? The Federal Reserve inflating assets, right? And those are, how, those are the sort of collateral signs of how this actually does work out despite all of the people throwing rocks at the equity rally along the way. So let's go back and talk about what the market, as you say, we've had several, you know, VIX events, we can call it dips in the tape to the 50 day moving average. So back in May, after the headline inflation dipped to the 50 day, which, by the way, was two or three down days in a row, big tick index extremes on the lows, and then a red to green day at the bottom to reverse it. Coming out of that, we had the big Bitcoin crash when Bitcoin crashed through 40K down to 30K and everybody thought it was going to zero and there was a big de-risking on that two weeks after the headline inflation number in May. What did the S&P do? Same as it ever was, man. Two or three negative days, 
big tick index prints on the lows saying that people were whacking bids and equities to take profits. A graze of the moving averages, red to green, and rally out of the hole. Then in June, we had Jackson Hole come out, excuse me, Fed minutes come out, very much a sell the fact event on how easy the Fed was going to continue to be. Minutes come out, two or three big negative days. Go ahead, finish the sentence for me. Big tick index prints on the extremes, red to green day on the bottom. And where are we now? Testing 4,500. Or oh, we are, excuse me, through 4,500 now. Yeah. So, you know, these are the dynamics that persist, Jack. And, you know, I feel like it's getting to the point where, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into this formula. We're getting into a bit of a new rotation. And I'm more concerned that stocks are going to melt up into the end of the year rather than break down now. So it, it just looks like it's better set up for a rally from August to December, I feel like, than maybe we were set up this year from January to February for a rally, which we were able to rally through anyway. So, you know, there's a lot of really positive conditions on the tape. You know, you mentioned the tests that, the, that we saw in the S&P over the last two months, and then we had another one this month. But overall... The S&P is passing the tests, coming out with flying colors, getting behind a new sector, rallying with commodity tailwinds, a weaker dollar, a sideways bond market, sanguine market-based inflation expectations that are kind of sideways to higher, but not setting off any fire alarms. I mean, you know, get me in the S&P ring every morning on the top step, and I'll be looking to buy contracts. I mean, that's just the way this market looks to me right now. Wow. Tony, I remember in January, you made that exact same argument about the Fed is inflating assets. You've really got to go where the Fed is going. And of course, you were absolutely right about that. I, I don't know exactly what the year-to-date returns of the S&P are, but very healthy, you know, 16, 18 percent, something like that, with you know almost no drawdowns um, from, from all-time highs, I should say. Uh, Tony, so you're, you're, it sounds like you're making that same argument that you're saying the same logic that fueled this rally is going to continue to fuel it. My question is, what about the expiration date of the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet and raising rates? We learned very dovish sentiment. Of course, you're absolutely right um, from, from Fed Chair Powell that just because we're going to taper doesn't mean we're going to raise rates. But you know, aren't markets supposed to be forward-looking? Aren't they going to sniff out something ar around the corner? Um, it sounds like you were just as bullish as you were in January. Is that true or are you very bullish, but just less bullish? No, I'm still bullish. You know, I'm still under the, um, I've still got the post-it up on the top right-hand corner of my screen that says the Fed is inflating assets. If you have assets, you're gonna be okay, right? And, and I'm still going with that plan because I don't think anything has changed. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear you mention, um, you know, is the clock ticking on the Fed balance sheet expansion? And when, you know, you look at how they've addressed everything in the pandemic and how we're moving forward to have the Federal Reserve, if you notice now that coming out of the pandemic, the Federal Reserve has got a climate change officer and they're going to start using that for room and reason to continue to build the Fed balance sheet. Trust me. Right. So we're going to see them say, you know, for health emergencies, Federal Reserve going to have to keep piling up the balance sheet. For climate emergencies, Federal Reserve, they're our guy. Continue to pile up the balance sheet. So 
you know, I, I'm not in the camp that there is an end line on the growth of the Fed balance sheet. I'm more in the Felix Zuloff camp where the Fed balance sheet probably gets to 40 trillion before this is over. And so that's a five bagger from where we are now in the Fed balance sheet as it climbs over 8 trillion. So when you wake up in the morning, if you operate from the mindset that the Fed, that we're going from 8 trillion at one day to some multiple of that another day, all of these prices on the screen are wrong, right? And we are going to get to the prices where they are going to be with consistent monetization. And that's why when you see this administration pivot so you know directly into the climate change, the new agenda, let's call it the green agenda, if I may, you know, there was just a headline yesterday. The FTC, Federal Trade Commission, will take measures to deter unlawful mergers in the oil and gas industry. Does that sound bearish, the price of oil to you, right? That is just going to make the cost of extracting oil go up. It's going to make the cost of transporting it go up. It's going to make all of the gasoline costs at the pump go up. So, you know, I still see inflation on the horizon in commodities. Um, I still see this strong pivot to the green agenda. And with such a strong pivot to the green agenda, I think you've got aluminum sending off a little bit of the alarm right now saying, you know, we're walking into this green agenda. We need a lot of commodities and the shelves are a little bare right now. And there's a lot of traffic to get them to the point that we need to get them to. And in the traffic, I'm talking about, you know, the shipping snarls that we're seeing where you've got container ships backed up for, you know, weeks and weeks behind schedule, et cetera. So, you know, with the bottlenecking, with the Fed balance sheet growing, with the pivot to the green agenda, like it's an absolute emergency, right? We're not looking at science on this agenda pivot. We're not looking at mathematics or economics, right? We're doing the planet saving thing and we're doing it as quickly as possible. And as long as that's the case, you know, I look at all the commodity markets. I look at the curves of the commodity markets. They're all backward dated. They're likely to get more backward dated in tighter conditions as long as demand is steady. So, I mean, Jack, it's hard for me to, to figure out the scenario where we're going to turn and just unwind all of this, right? Like it still steam, steams like a um, kind of a steamroller just getting going in one direction a lot of times when I look at the tape. And, you know, we just got through an episode where China tried really hard to put the kibosh on the commodity trade. You know, they knocked iron ore from 1,000 won down below 800 won per metric ton. And, you know, you got a little dip in copper and all of a sudden aluminum goes, yeah, new highs for me. Copper says, okay, we're bouncing off the 200 day. Metals and mining leads the S&P for another week. And you look up and you're like, wait a minute, this trade is going to get another leg right now. And so, you know, when you look at the charts, they're still poised to take off into the end of the year. And that's like, I can't, I can't, the only thing that tempers me, Jack, if, if we can get to that point finally, is that, you know, the inflows to the equity market have been, you know, tsunami-esque this year, to the point that inflows to the equity market this year are almost equal to, I believe, and don't quote me on the exact number, but like the last seven or eight years of equity inflows all in the beginning of this year. So, you know, we've got a lot to weigh out. It looks like the flow is sensing what's going on in the world. And I'm not going to make believe that this is one of those situations where all of those entrants into the equity market can't all be correct. You know, why do they all have to be wrong if they're picking up on what's going on just like we are? They're seeing the hard assets get more valuable before their eyes. 
they're seeing the Fed inflating them. And so I feel like the cycle can just keep itself sustained for a little while because I don't think that this new money coming into the market is has has got like a tight stop on it or, you know, plans on just turning and dumping on the next 5% pullback. So I think there are real investors. I think they're investors for good reasons. And uh, I'm going to stick with the S&P trade and this formula until it burns me bad. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Oh, great. Uh, Tony, we've got a ton of questions from the audience. I'm just going to choose a few. You mentioned aluminum, you mentioned copper, that with the uh, green agenda, they're getting short on the shelves. Uh, lithium as well, rare earths, you are really seeing a huge bid for these green metals, uh, as they say them. Mark wants to know, what is Tony's favorite way to, plain cop uh, to play copper? Plain futures or via stocks like FCX as well, FCX being Freeport Macron? Great question. And, you know, that's a great, simple question, but there's a lot of knowledge in there because I, to, to answer the question, I like to be, I like to trade Freeport MacMoran as a proxy to copper. Um, I've also trade um, mercantile exchange copper in New York, high grade copper, because it's, you know, if I want just a pure commodity play, I will buy just the copper contract, especially if I can roll it into a backward dated market and pick up positive carry. But I like to become a specialist in one stock. And Freeport MacMoran is a stock that I've been watching from the days at Dolman Rose when Anthony Rizzuto was the biggest base metal um, you know, analyst in the market. And he's best friends with the president of Freeport. And we had so much good information that I got to know that company so well, just in terms of what its revenues are and what its um, income streams are and how it's correlated to the commodity markets. So I want to become a specialist in Freeport MacMoran price action when I want to make money in copper, quite honestly. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in history, in, in, in my history as a trader, that I've just sat and watched Freeport MacMoran tick lower and lower and lower and lower and lower for days, weeks, months, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden the bell goes off and it changes direction. And you see all of those technical boxes check themselves right before your eyes. And you're like, yeah, Freeport is the trade. And, you know, that's when you see Freeport go from, you know, like we saw during the lockdown, 13 bucks to last sale at 40. And, you know, those are the three and four and five baggers that we hunt as sort of commodity backed S&P traders, if you will. So all of my uh, lifetime expertise and networking is in the commodity space. So I try to really drill down and become a specialist in very few things related to copper. So I like high grade. Um, I like to watch LME copper as the proxy, but yeah, I like to trade Freeport MacMoran and become at, memorize the price action and understand what's going on with the earnings and headlines. So yeah, I like to drill down into that one name and really dig in there. Tony, I think you're being modest. Freeport MacMoran, it didn't go from 13 to 40. I think it went from like five to 40. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'll be honest with you, Jack. I wasn't on it that early. It was still doing its consolidation thing for me. But then I remember as it broke up through nine, 10 and 12, that you know, I had all kinds of upside alarms going on. It was going through my moving average cycle like I expected it to, and with my trade mechanism, you know, where I'm, I'm a bull market trader, I'm a momentum junkie. 
And, you know, when things go from five to 35, I usually do fairly well. Yeah. And I, I should add, Tony, you're a veteran trader in the commodity markets. Uh, you know, you're not going to make mistakes. There was people who are retail traders, perhaps they'll, they'll click the wrong button and suddenly they'll have, you know, 5,000 tons of, of copper wiring uh, delivered to their door. <laughs> That's funny, Jack. And I'll tell you, you know, you know why I don't make the mistakes anymore? I made, yeah. I made them all three times over. I paid for the lessons dearly. You know, I've got all the scars and everything. And that's why, um, you know, now I like, like I've gone over a million times, I kind of let the market guide me rather than um, letting lizard brain try to figure out what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony, you've only got a few minutes left. Earlier in our talk, you referenced gold. Today, we had an interview on the Real Vision Essential tier between Michael Nicoletos and Tavi Costa, where Michael made a really interesting point about gold. Let's take a look at the clip and then I want to uh, get your take on it. Let's go. When only one country or one currency does QE, you will see it on their effects because it's probably going to devalue. When everyone's doing QE, you will not see it on the effects rate because obviously everyone's doing it. So the effects moves will be subtle. Now, you need hard assets to compare those currencies to hard assets. And I see gold as one of these assets where you can compare. So I don't see it necessarily as gold appreciating. I seeing it as currencies depreciating versus gold. So Tony, what do you uh, think about Michael's comment, the relationship between quantitative easing and hard assets? I know you have a, a take on this. Yeah, it's a really smart quote. You know, I like his point about uh, competitive currency devaluation and how it's really hard to see. You know, it's really hard to tell if there was one uh, country on the planet that was doing QE and none of the rest were. It would be quite obvious what is going on with that currency. And, you know, I mean, I remember going back to 2013 when, um, you know, um, I guess it was Montego, one of Brazil's like finance ministers said, we are absolutely back in a currency war. And that was shortly after, you know, the ECB really turned up the gas on their balance sheet, raising their balance sheet and adding assets. And I think his, you know, this this quote kind of speaks to that, where everybody, you know, the, the G7 kind of realized that this is kind of an all or none thing. Otherwise, we're going to have one of the fiat currencies get pummeled and likely, you know, that'll be really good for the precious metals markets. I don't, I don't think many central banks are big fans of precious metals. You know, I think they look at that, uh, you know, the gold market as the metal that can rat them out, right? I think that when they're causing massive, massive inflation in our grocery bill, I think the market looks to gold to say, hey, we're, gold is going to represent that inflation in your grocery bill. And, you know, I know Jerome Powell knows better than anybody that he can cause a short covering rally in the dollar, probably add some gold selling on top of that and really take the rally out of gold. You know, I feel like that's what he did in after the last um, FOMC meeting when you saw the dollar uh, dollar index, for example, rally sharply from like 90 and a half through 93. Right. And that was all, I think, Fed constructed in order to back Jerome Powell's transitory inflation argument, because when gold goes from 1900 to 1700, you can point at the screen and say, I oh, was pretty transitory. Don't you think? I mean. Gold 1700 offered, that's not inflationary. Markets aren't screaming inflation. So, you know, that we have to be careful with how to fit gold into um, the inflation hedge uh, pyramid, food chain, if you will. You know, there's, there's, there's Bitcoin and Ethereum that are performing way better than gold as an inflation hedge, 
as inflation hits our actual Amex bill, grocery bill, gas tank bill, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum up several hundred percent and gold, I think, is down 10 percent on the year or sort of in the last year's time when we know that Fed policies have absolutely caused inflation. You know, Biden energy policy has absolutely caused energy inflation. And yet, you know, the price of gold doesn't really care about that. So, you know, I'm a little bit wary of gold as an inflation hedge, but I do like to hold physical gold as a little bit of an insurance policy. Okay, yeah, th that was a question I was going to ask, which is, uh, uh, Michael asks uh, Octavio in the interview, everything that's happening, you know, extremely negative real rates, uh, balance sheet expansion, whether that is super inflationary or not, you know, we know, um, all, you know, very uh, rates being held at essentially zero on the front end of the curve, huge fiscal deficits that we the likes of which we've never seen. All of this is just a incredibly fertile ground for gold. And yet, uh, with the exception of the mega rally from uh, you know March of last year to June, um, gold has performed very very badly relative to almost anything else. So, you know, if not now, when? If not you know, if not now, when? What would you say to that? You know, uh, I've been I, I've been around the gold market for a really long time now, and I have to say. You know, I won't count it out because I remember I remember when I was down on the mercantile exchange and there was an old gentleman named Don that used to walk around with a suitcase full of metal coins and guys used to buy gold and silver coins off him just to get rid of the guy. And he was a lovely guy and silver coins were five bucks a piece and gold coins were 250 bucks a piece. And there was so much money down at the Merc, guys would be like, Don, here's a thousand dollars. Give me some coins and beat it if you don't mind. Right now. The guys that were buying the gold for for real back then were like, you know, there's going to be a day for this when this 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 commodity works. You know, I'm telling you, you know, this is a cheap commodity, and you know, so I've seen gold quintuple from 400 to 1200 and to almost 2k. So I'm not going to count gold out for good. I'm just going to say that in, as the world sort of evolves and there are more inflation hedges available. And more and more institutions begin to pursue other inflation hedges. Doesn't make such a great case for gold. You know, gold looks like it's setting itself up to get left for dead again. And then when it gets left for dead and consolidates at a price for a long period of time, then that's when it'll pick up and go again when nobody else is looking at it. So, you know, with all eyes on gold now as an inflation hedge, I don't know, I'd rather be long Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. It's up 300 percent in the last year. You know, um, you know, so is my grocery bill. So, you know, with gold flat on the year, it doesn't really jive with what I see with my eyes and hear with my ears on the inflation story. You know, our home prices are going up. There's name a price and it's going up. So, you know, gold being that gold isn't, you know, I just want to be as a performance driven trader. When, you know, I go through a couple of months of following these commodities, gold is doing nothing several months in a row. You know, I start to exit out, you know, I, I start to pay less and less attention to it for, you know, chasing the performance of things that go up 10 and 20 percent in a month. So, you know, that that's generally what is going to draw more capital. So, you know, I just don't really have a, a passionate directional trade for gold right now. I don't have any big position. I have no gold positions whatsoever other than physical, which, you know, is non-negotiable and not not sale for me. So. You know, I, I, it's one of those things that's kind of just there right now. It's not at the top of my radar screen, Jack. Yeah, that's wow, that's really, really interesting that your core thesis uh, revolves around being long, hard assets, and yet 
when you think of the most you know, prototypical hard asset gold, it's not on your radar. There are other things, oil and all these different ways to express it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's enemies to the gold bull, right? And I don't really want to trade with enemies shooting at my back in the markets. If the central banks decide that gold is the thing that rats them out and they don't want it to go up, I don't, I, I don't have to be the macho man and play in that, in that arena and say, well, we're going to make gold go up. It's like I don't have the pockets or the power that they do. So, um, you know, it, it, you, you, you can count it out for now and kind of just watch the other things perform and just kind of use it to see how the world's changing around you, if that's fair. Mm, what, 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 the market, what the market is, where the market is perceiving the better value and the better inflation edge. Wonderful. Well, uh, Tony, thank you so much for joining. It's been a true pleasure to interview you. You will be back. You know, you're known as uh, Tony Greer, TG Tuesday. Uh, next week, you'll be actually be on Thursday, not Tuesday. Uh, our friend Jared Dillian will be here instead. Um, and tomorrow, I, I will be speaking to Real Vision CEO Rao Powell. So uh, everyone at home, stay tuned for both of those events. Tony, thank you so much. Um, talk to you soon. Yeah, great job today, Jack. Well done, my man. Thank you. You too. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.